interesting video. Um, and and while you know we might be tempted just to kind of dismiss it or laugh it off or or just say, oh wow, look how bad off they are. Um, that's the real world out there. I mean, this is this is no joke. Um, it's it, it, this is what people really believe, and you know, kudos to them for being able to um, or being willing to you know put it on video and just to come right out and say, yeah, just I don't believe it. I don't think it was translated correctly. I don't think it's really relevant. Don't really read it. Don't really know why. Just uh, just don't really get around to it. I know I probably should, right? But it just really doesn't make a difference in my life. So I, I found myself, and, and thanks to Gary for, for finding that video, um, because I thought it was, it was an awesome lead-in to really what we're here to talk about this morning, which is not only what do we believe about the Bible, Right, as a church, as a body of believers, what do we believe? But why does it matter? Because to me, that's the real question. What we believe, what we say we believe, our our statement of faith about the Bible. I mean, it's 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 already out there, right? So if you go to the Tapestries website, um, it's just it's right there on the website, right? And I'm not going to read the whole thing, right? Because it's it's fairly long. Um, but if you look at our website, right? Just to kind of summarize it, right? Scripture originated with God through the instrumentality of chosen men, speaks with the authority of God, but reflects the background styles and vocabularies of the authors. Infallible, expressing truth without mixture of error. It's the full and final authority on matters of faith and practice with no other writings inspired by God, right? Okay, so that's kind of a mouthful, but that is basically what we believe about the Bible. And I'm certainly not going to stand up here this morning and, and really add to that or, or come up with, with some um, you know, grand new revelation or, or way of interpreting the Bible that, that hasn't been discussed and written about hundreds or thousands of times, right? Right. As, as, as C.S. Lewis t- t- tells it, you know, only the cracks and qu- uh, the, the, the cranks and quacks are the ones that come up with anything really new. That, that it's really the job of, of teachers, of Bible-based teachers, to bring us back to those things that we might not want to hear. So this morning, I really want to try to accomplish just three things. One is, I want to equip us with some, some basic facts, some, some basic knowledge about the, the trustworthiness and the reliability of the Bible, so that we can, if we find ourselves engaged in a conversation with you know, folks like we saw in the video, we, we can have that conversation, right? Not, not to try to argue them into salvation, like that ever actually really works, um, but just so that we can have a conversation. Um, the second thing I'd like to try to accomplish is um, for us, as we are studying the Bible, to, to provide uh, just a, a basic framework for interpretation, um, as well as to talk about some things that we can do when we hear others' interpretation to evaluate um, whether or not we, we believe that that interpretation is consistent with, the God, with God's Word. But really the third thing, and I think to me is the most important, is the so what. 
is to answer the so what question. We believe X about the Bible. Great. So what? What difference does it actually make in our day-to-day lives when we leave this building? So let's, let's start with some of the, some of the, the arguments, some of the, the um, concerns that were raised by the folks in the video that, that really come down to kind of two, two key questions. The first one being the trustworthiness of Scripture and the reliability of the modern translations that, that we all, all have access to. Um, because if you think about it, the attacks on the Word of God are really nothing new, Right? They go back to the beginning of creation. Think about the Garden of Eden. Think about Satan and his temptation of Adam and Eve. Where did he start? He started by questioning God's word, right? Oh, God really didn't say that. He didn't mean that. That won't really happen. Just those, those little persistent attacks... On God's word, and if you actually read it closely, you find the other problem, which was Eve really, when when she relayed back what what God had said, she she kind of got it wrong. So so you couple ignorance with of God's word with attacks on God's word, and that's that's a recipe for bad things to happen. But so 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 really, what we want to begin with is the trustworthiness of God's word. And that really comes from the very foundation of where did it come from, and that is the idea of inspiration, right? What we talk about or what we state directly on, you know, our church's statement of faith, which is God's word comes from God, full stop, right? It wasn't inspirational in terms of, you know, the the writer's, um, you know, just sort of felt inspired about things, and so they wrote things. So that it, it, it was actually given through the writers by God Himself. Um, and if you'll bear with me for just a second, there's there's a little bit of a distinction, right? There, when it comes to um, what's called general revelation and special revelation, I know those are two kind of churchy terms. Let me let me just kind of put them in very simple terms. General revelation, right, is what Paul talks about in Romans, right? There are things that we can understand just from creation around us, right? It's those those invisible attributes of God that Paul says have been known since creation that everyone can understand about God. But there is a certain special revelation through God's word that is unknowable by human means, right? So it's things about the, the character of God, his love, his justice, his mercy, um, how, we are recon- how, how we are reconciled to God through Christ, how we obtain that, what our response to that. Those are all things that go into things that come to us through God's word that are not knowable by our own, own reasoning. It, it's really summed up in 2 Timothy, if you've got your Bibles, um, 2 Timothy verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 16, right, where, where Scripture attests to all Scripture is inspired by God. Um, literally, the, the word that's used there means God breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God Himself. Um, it is not just... Um, it is, is not just words written by men, but it is actual word of God. And what flows from that is the idea, again, that we talk about 
um, with infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. Another couple of theological terms you may have heard. But basically the idea is because the Word of God is inspired um, or, or the Bible is inspired, comes directly from God, that it is, it is not a mixture of truth and error. It is in and of itself truth. Which really kind of brings us then to the second question, which is how do we know that what we have today is a reliable translation, a reliable history of what was actually given to the writers of, of Scripture, right? Because, you know, the 66 books that, that we consider to be part of the canon, right, the part of Scripture, goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years um, to, so, so how do we know that what we have today is really accurate? Well, let me, let me suggest there's really two main tests. And there's, this goes very, very deep and much deeper than we have time for this morning. But there's a couple of things to look at. The first one is um, the number and the age of the original manuscripts that survive today, right? And how close those documents go back to the, the time of the original writings and, how, and the level to which they agree um, with each other. So that's really one of the, and there's a lot more behind that, but that's just kind of the, the, the short, shorthand view of that. Um, so, and when we look at it both from the standpoint of the Old and the New Testament, um, the, the numbers are, are quite good. So again, not to overwhelm you with a bunch of numbers and facts and figures, but just to give you a couple of, couple of three things to sort of hang on to um, should this ever come up in conversation. So you will look, if you look first at the Old Testament, right? Go back to the Old Testament. The oldest complete version that we have of the, the Old Testament or, or what some folks call the, the Hebrew Bible um, goes back to about 900 A.D., which from a historical standpoint is not great, right? But then you take the fragmentary manuscripts, things like um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, you take other sources that go into making up those complete manuscripts. Now you're going back to, you know, around, I think, as early as about... Uh, 150 to 200 BC. So you're now going back about a thousand years. And one of the things that, that archaeologists and, and historians have found is a very, very large degree of agreement across those different manuscripts, in addition to um, uh, various translations of the Old Testament into other languages that go back as early as like two to 300 BC. So you've got a lot of, a lot of documentary evidence that goes back actually before the time of Christ to the accuracy and reliability of the Old Testament that we still have access to today. So that's the Old Testament. You know, when you talk about the New Testament, the, the numbers are actually quite different. And, and they're honestly, they're mind-boggling. When you look at some of the numbers about the, the access that we have to manuscripts of the New Testament, it blows your mind. Quit, put, put quite simply, we have more documentary evidence of the accuracy of the New Testament than any other ancient book on the planet. It is staggering. Again, not to overwhelm you with a bunch of facts and figures, but 
At last count, based on the number, the articles that I read, there are almost 6,000 complete manuscripts of the New Testament. 6,000. Uh, that's 6,000 in the, the original Greek language. You add to that 10,000 Latin manuscripts and another almost 10,000 manuscripts in other ancient languages, Egyptian, Syrian, so on and so forth. You put all that together, you've got roughly 25,000 original manuscripts of, or or 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, and we still have them today. We've got three complete manuscripts of the entire New Testament that date from about the 3rd or 4th century um, that, that have, the, have the New Testament in its entirety. Um, it, it is, it is, uh, one article I read said it is, it, is a, uh, it is just a treasure trove of riches um, that we have of the New Testament. So again, all that to say that, that we can certainly have conversations about interpretations of the New Testament. We can have conversations about um, doctrines or, or any of those types of things. But for someone to argue and just kind of throw up their hands and say, well, it was, it was written so long ago and we just can't know because it's been translated and translated and translated. We just really can't know what, it, what was originally there. The, the facts don't support that. I mean, the, the, it is, just put quite simply, it is the most well-preserved ancient text in the history of man. Full stop. That, the, those are the facts. So it, is, it's, it really speaks to how well all of that has been preserved and how relevant it is to, to us knowing today that, what was, that we still ha- have access to what, what God had originally given to those writers. Now, that being said, given that we accept Scripture as the Word of God, given that we accept inerrancy, right, that it is, that it is without error, we have to also understand that even though the Bible is inerrant, our interpretation can very easily be in error. It, it, has, it has been very, very frequently in error, and it has, those errors have been very destructive. Um, sometimes those errors, you know, they're, they're not great. You know, bad interpretations, sometimes they're not exactly helpful, but, but they're not exactly, you know, they don't really cause any long-term harm. Other times, those interpretations are, are, are harmful for years, decades. Um, the, the, the only analogy I could really come up with, and this is fairly, fairly crude, so pre, please forgive me, but it, it's kind of like the difference between eating a Big Mac and drinking rat poison, right? I, I like Big Macs. A steady diet of Big Macs, eh, it's not exactly helpful, but it's not going to kill me. But there are interpretations out there, even today, that are poisonous, and we've got to be able to evaluate them. But again, this, this is nothing new. A couple of verses I want to read um, from Timothy. Um, if you're familiar with Timothy, Timothy was a young pastor. Paul uh, was um, you know, sort of his mentor, I guess, for lack of a better term. But, but the letters 
First uh, and Second Timothy are actually letters from Paul to Timothy as, as he is um, uh, preaching and teaching uh, and, and becoming a leader in the early church. Um, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5 says, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion, and constant friction. Boy, that sounds familiar. Evil suspicion and constant friction between men of corrupt minds who have been robbed of the truth and think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Um, and then again in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5, Paul says, For time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, and instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So, again, this, this is nothing new. What we're seeing today um, with, with false teaching, with false, you know, all the, the falsehoods that surround the Word of God, it's nothing new. There, there is truly nothing new under the sun. This goes all the way back to the very beginnings of the New Testament church, and, and even earlier than that, but there have always been false teachers, right, that have, that have sought to corrupt the Word of God. So what do we do about that? How can we be discerning in understanding the difference between true interpretation and false interpretation? Or how can we differentiate those things that are, that are, that are you know, pleasing, that are beneficial, that are building up versus those things that tear down? Well, if, if you are making notes, um, I want to suggest five basic tests. Um, they're pretty straightforward, and, and for me personally, I have found them to be fairly beneficial in, in being able to look at different interpretations. So the, the five tests are the source, the motivation, the authority, the message, and the impact. I'll give them to you again. The source, the motivation, the authority, the message, and the impact. Okay, so what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, the, the first two kind of go together pretty closely, the source and the motivation, right? What is the source of the teaching? Who is teaching? Who is speaking? And what is their motivation, right? Are they coming at the teaching from a position of pride or a position of humility, right? Are, what, what can we as believers understand about the, the teaching that we're hearing, right? We all have, as believers, you know, Pastor Phil last week talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, right? Talked about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers, right? We have, we have all been illuminated, for lack of a better term, um, that is actually the term, sorry. Um, we have all used, ha- have access to the Holy Spirit to guide us in understanding scripture so being able to understand the source and the motivation of the person especially if it looks like as as paul wrote directly you know that they're motivated made motivated by some sort of earthly gain right money influence power you know just 
understand what the, the, who the messenger is and what we can understand about them goes a long way towards helping us to, to understand and evaluate what they're saying. But the, the, the other big one is what is their authority, right? So, so me, I have, in and of myself, I have zero authority. Sam, don't say a word. But, but all, all joking aside, I have zero authority. Pastor Phil has in and of himself zero authority. All of our authority only flows from Scripture, right? Jesus, right, in, in Matthew 7, chapter, chapter 7, verse 29, it talks about, you know, the crowds being amazed at Jesus because he spoke as one with authority, not as the other teachers of the law. Right. He had the authority to issue the word of God because obviously he was God. The apostles, the apostles had the authority of scripture because that that authority had been vested in them directly from God. But our authority as any teachers of scripture only comes from scripture. So really in understanding where the authority of the person speaking speaking comes from goes a long way in helping to evaluate whether or not uh, what they're saying holds up against Scripture, right? And and again, some of these are easy to spot, right? Back to the quacks and cranks, right? If, If someone is saying, you know, I received a word from the Lord that I need a private jet, you know, they're probably a quack. But... Some of them are a little bit more insidious. Some of them are a little bit more nuanced. And and we really, really have to be careful in understanding where do they get their authority and how close what they claim as their authority to line lines up to Scripture. And then the last two really go together. And again, those are the message and the impact. Right. Is is the message a balance of encouragement and conviction? Is the impact building up or tearing down? Right. Again, going back to that that list from from Paul. Right. Controversies, quarrels, envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion, constant friction. Is that what the message is producing? If that's what the message is producing. I think it's absolutely legitimate to question both the message and the messenger and say, is this really a sound interpretation of God's word? And the last thing I wanted to mention, and, and again, this is, again, just something to kind of get your spidey sense tingling, right, is also be wary of someone who is saying this is God's way of X or this is the biblical interpretation of X. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. There are certain things that, that orthodox belief in Christianity, it is black letter law. You know, the, the primary doctrines, salvation, justification by faith, the divinity of Christ, you know, all of those things are very much, um, you know, there are fundamental doctrines that, that as a believer we say we believe. But when we get into more of the secondary doctrines or things that are, you know, sort of practical matters of interpretation, that's when the gray areas start to come in a little bit and and be very, very wary of someone who says, this is the only way in order to follow God's word. 
They may be right. They may be wrong. It's certainly one of the things to watch out for. So how do we interpret Scripture? If we are honest in wanting to go to the Bible and honestly interpret Scripture, um, how, how do we go about doing that? And again, I could, I could spend a lot longer than we have together this morning talking about this. But again, just want to offer you four kind of very basic ideas or four very basic principles um, to, to keep in mind in understanding Scripture. Um, and I'll, I'll go through these fairly briefly. Um, they are literal interpretation, and I want to I hit that one first because there's a lot of confusion around what that actually means in terms of literal interpretation. Literal interpretation, uh, grammar and history, uh, teaching, and spiritual harmony. All right, so, so what do I mean by literal interpretation? Um, what I mean specifically is not to ignore the plain meaning of Scripture when it is possible to do so, right? There are a lot of times where the writers of Scripture will make a statement, and that statement is you can just take it on face value. You don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to try to wrap your head around uh, all kinds of nuance or, or any of that kind of stuff. Again, this doesn't apply in in every situation, and I'm not saying that that we have to take every word for word in Scripture literally in all cases. That that is that is that is not correct, right? We would all be walking around with like one eye and one hand if we did so. So you know that that doesn't hold up. But but to to take or to ignore the plain meaning of Scripture when it is plain is is just it, it's not it's it's not a good way to approach scripture. So so the literal interpretation or the the plain view meaning of scripture is really the starting point in understanding scripture. Um, the second piece is grammar and history, right? And and again, this part is not for everyone, but but one of the things that is very helpful to do frequently is to use. Um, other materials, um, keywords, keyword reference Bibles, um, to go back to the original Greek, the original Hebrew language, um, understanding the cultural context of the, the, the writings themselves through something like a study Bible or commentary. Those can actually be very, very helpful. Um, understanding that, you know, in the original language, um, certain words just don't translate perfectly, right? And so understanding the, the grammar and the, the context of certain words can really be very illuminating as, as we study, um, study the Bible. Teaching, right, commentaries, listening to, to the teachings of, of trusted sources, again, is a, is a very good way to, to approach the Bible. But then also um, scriptural harmony, right, understanding that the Bible is not going to contradict itself but and then looking at the Bible in its entirety as we seek to interpret Scripture. Think about think about a, again a, a rather basic analogy. If you'll for me, if you'll forgive me, think about a jigsaw puzzle. Right? I take one single piece of piece of a puzzle out of the box and I look at it. I may know what it looks like. I may not know what it looks like. I may may know how it fits in with all the other pieces. I might not know. But when I take all of those pieces and I fit them together, 
then I understand what the picture looks like on the top of the box. So uh, again, just some of the things to keep in mind in, in, in interpreting Scripture. So I talked about the first two, but where I really want to finish up is trying to answer the so what question, right? We've said what we believe. We've written down what we believe. We've published what we believe on the website, right? But what difference does it actually make in our day-to-day lives? Well, I actually came across a recent study from, uh, from the Barna Group, who, I, uh, if you've been around here long enough, you know Pastor Phil has cited the Barna Group uh, quite frequently. Um, but there was a recent study that they did that actually sought to answer that question. And they did so by looking at both how often people interact with the, with the Bible and whether or not that interaction with the Bible shaped the choices that they made and shaped the relationships that they had with other people. So it was actually a fascinating article to read because what they found, the good news is what they found was that, um, and again, this is not really surprising, that that the the folks who more frequently engaged with the Bible, um, they experienced a greater awareness of how how much they need God, they felt a, a closer connection to God. They felt a desire to know God better. Um, but then also that was expressed uh, very much in, in their interactions with, with, uh, with their neighbors, so to speak. Right? They, were, they were more loving towards others. Uh, they were more generous with their time. Um, they were more generous with their energy, their financial resources. Um, they had uh, more positive engagements with, with people that were different from them, with, with people of different races, with people of different economic backgrounds and economic means. Um, they, they would frequently use the Bible to, to influence their decisions at work or home or, or making just different, different choices. You know, the Bible had a very, very strong influence on their day-to-day life. So that was really good news. The bad news is that was only about one in four people, maybe one in five. And so, which really kind of made me think, why in a country where, you know, at last count, some, somehow, somewhere between 70 and 80% of people in America claim to be Christians, right? But why then do we really only have about 20, 25% of folks who will say, yeah, I claim to be a Christian and God's word has an impact on my life. And I think it really kind of comes down to, uh, again, going back to another article uh, or another research study from the Barna Group, and I am going to read this quotation in its entirety because I think this really sort of sums up why there's such a gap between claiming to be a Christian and acting Christianly. I I know I've had lots of conversations with people, and that's frequently one of the first questions that comes up, is why do people who claim to be Christian not act that way? Why is there no evidence that they live out what they say they believe? Have that conversation over and over and over again. Well, This article said the primary reasons people don't act like Jesus is because they don't think like Jesus. Behavior stems from what we think, our attitudes, our beliefs, our values, and our opinions. 
And although most people own a Bible and know some of its content, our research found that most Americans have little idea how to integrate core biblical principles to form a unified and meaningful response. Right? Most Americans have little idea how to integrate biblical principles into an overall way of living. That, that is the so what question to me. That is why we study the Bible. is because the Bible is transformative. It changes us. It, from the outside in, it changes our thinking. It changes our beliefs. It changes our actions. It changes our attitudes. It changes all of those things. Right? This is, to me, the issue facing the church today, which is, are we going to be the kind of people who honestly go to God's Word and seek out God's Word, or are we going to live our lives in an echo chamber where the only reason that we go to the Bible is to reinforce the things that we already believe, right? The, the stakes are enormous, especially when you, when you look at some of the statistics about the, the rise of the, the generation that's coming behind a lot of us, the generation that wants to have absolutely nothing to do with the church and with God, the stakes for that generation are enormous. But, but we have an incredible calling, right? Our calling is we get our head and our hearts and our hands and feet aligned with God's Word. That is where the Bible makes a huge difference. That is the so what of what we believe about the Bible. What do we believe about the Bible? It's the Word of God. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. There is no other book like it in all of history. And it has the power, the power of God to change lives. Our challenge is our head and our hearts and our hands lined up with that. To be salt and light in a dying world. That's what we believe. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for what you have given us in your word. Father, the, the incredible depth, the incredible riches of what we can know, what you have chosen to real, reveal to us, Father. Just pray right now that in, in every one of us you would just deepen that love, that passion for understanding your word and applying in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.